One thing that we've heard from people are questions about how we know what we know in this report and why we feel as comfortable as we do making these recommendations. We wanted to know is the ways that people in the history community communicate what our field is, are they having the effect that we want? Are they helping the public better understand what history work is? And that's an empirical question. That is something that can be answered with research and with the method that we used in this report. You know, I have staff and team members who are really struggling of how to navigate conversations around critical race theory. How do we have conversations and be inclusive of our fuller story, our diverse narrative? It may not go the way you hope the first time. Don't feel defeated. There's going to be lots more opportunities to, to try that. And the toolkit, I think, does some really good job. I like the way that some of this language is, is, is presented in the toolkit in terms of giving you segues to try to redirect conversations. And that that is not always... I don't know that it's ever easy to do, and sometimes it can be quite difficult to do. This is Reframing History, a limited series from the American Association for State and Local History. I'm Christy Coleman, Executive Director of the Jamestown-Yorktown Foundation. And I'm Jason Steinhauer, Global Fellow at the Wilson Center and author of History Disrupted. In this six-part series, we're speaking to history practitioners from around the country about how they communicate the role and value of history to the public. To help frame this conversation, we're using a new report on history communication called Making History Matter. This research-backed report offers specific language that history communicators can use to bridge the gap between how we talk about history and how the public understands history work. You can download the report at aaslh.org slash reframinghistory. This is episode six. Now what? Using the Reframing History Report and Toolkit. Over the course of this series, we've covered the entire Making History Matter report. In this final installment, we'll discuss how to put the report's findings into practice with a little help from two leaders in our field. Then, AASLH's John Marks will walk us through the Reframing History Toolkit and address common questions and concerns that have come up since the report launched. Jennifer Ortiz and Steve Murray have been involved in discussions about this research and possible applications over the past year. They joined us today for a discussion about the report and toolkit. To kick things off, we asked them to introduce themselves and the organization's most immediate communication challenges. Yeah, so my name is Jennifer Ortiz, and I'm the director for the Utah Division of State History. So we are the state historical organization for the state of Utah. We're a government agency. And within the Division of State History, we have our library and collections, um, so collections from across the state, historical collections, our historical society and public history team, publications, and then our outreach division as well. Hi, this is Steve Murray. I'm director at the Alabama Department of Archives and History. We're also a state agency. Uh, We function as the official repository for state government records, and also are home to the state's history museum. Very much in the forefront of our minds these days is the whole issue of critical race theory and divisive concepts in K-12 education. Our agency works extensively with uh, K-12 educators throughout our state, and we're involved in discussions in our state about what really happens in K-12 classrooms and why it's so important to the functioning of a constitutional democracy. 
These issues also have resonance for work that we've been undertaking for a long time at our agency, but have been much more vocal and explicit about in the last couple of years. In 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, our agency released a statement of recommitment to inclusive history. And that statement arose at the time because we wanted to point out resources that we had at our organization that could help the public understand what was happening in this national discussion about the history of racial injustice and discrimination. And we wanted that history to be useful to the public, but also knew in the process of uh, promoting those resources that we needed to be honest about our our own agency's contributions to systemic racism in the past, because our organization practiced collecting and preservation in a way that was highly discriminatory throughout a good portion of the 20th century and was actively involved in promoting a skewed and incomplete version of of history for consumption by both K-12 students and the public over decades. And so uh, we've, we've been engaged heavily in trying to be clear about messaging and, and, and talking specifically about what history is and what good history is. Yeah, you know, I I will echo a lot of what Steve has already talked about. Um, you know, a lot of our communication challenges as a as a history organization and of course a state history organization, inter- it's the interaction with what is happening in the media today. And so, you know, I have staff and team members who are really struggling of how to navigate conversations around critical race theory. How do we have conversations and be inclusive of our fuller story, our diverse narrative. I think another big communication challenge that we have that I think Steve has alluded to is this idea or or conversation around who are the experts in the room. And that I think historically has been a challenge in our field, right? Of what what are historians, what do they do? And how do we communicate that to the general public? And I think that that's where the report comes into play and helps us sort of frame that conversation really well. Okay, so let's talk about what's working well. Specific language, recommendations from the report. What has been most helpful to you and your staff? Well, I, I uh, find very appealing the, the recommendation addressing the, the framing of history as detective work and, and the idea that uh, we are about examining and interpreting evidence and all the challenges that come with that. And I think for especially those of us who work in government organizations that's a that's a familiar concept you know not just in the kind of the popular culture framework of tv detective work but the fact that state agencies of all kinds use evidence to draw conclusions about the services that they're delivering what the needs of their constituencies are and that to me seems like a, a vocabulary that resonates with legislators and, and policymakers. And, and it's easily adaptable, I think, depending on who your audience is. So, you know, it may not be specifically how detectives uh, use evidence in their work, but if, if you know that you're speaking to a legislator or a county commissioner who works in real estate or in banking, you know, those professions all use evidence in very specific ways. And they are sometimes presented with contradictory pieces of evidence. You know, you know, you, you get different appraisals on properties or different uh, ways of evaluating the credit worthiness of, a, of an applicant for a loan. And so they have to make decisions and kind of parse this information in a way that is not dissimilar from what historians do when we are trying to 
draw conclusions about what the evidence tells us about the past. So that, to me, points us in an important direction to thinking about rather than that polarizing aspects of truth and untruth to think more about process and tools and the kinds of thinking skills that that uh, we use and that we want young people to develop. The thing that has really resonated with us as a team uh, has been a, f- a handful of the points in the report. One of them has been using concrete and location-specific examples to build the support for inclusive history. And so we do need to be mindful of the audiences as a state agency and who we're speaking to, particularly legislators in our state, um, when we go to seek funding for this kind of work, you know, we have been using these specific examples of more inclusive narratives to sort of hone in the need for this continued work. And so, uh, for example, um, you know, as part of our pitch for funding, you know, we, we talk about there's over a hundred languages and dialects that are spoken in Granite School District in Salt Lake City alone. And that's a, a fact that a lot of people don't know, but those are kind of the hidden pieces of information that it is our, our role and our responsibility to tease out and to share, um, to again, make that really concrete and to sort of pull back the veil um, because that history is here. It's just not part of the dominant narrative of our state's history. And so when we pull out those examples, you can see in people's faces when you talk to them, like, wow, I didn't know that. And wow, that's a really incredible piece of information. What else can you share with me? And so it kind of opens up the dialogue for people that may have not thought about that to begin with because they don't have a connection to maybe the diverse population in our state or in Salt Lake City. And so that has been really successful for us as an agency to help sort of introduce the conversation and and broach the subject of a more inclusive narrative. One of the other pieces of the framework that has been really successful for us is being solutions focused. And so highlighting those positive examples of inclusive work, you know, the report mentions that we're not, you know, try to be honest, but also not fatalistic as we move forward. And that really has proven to be successful. So when we can pull out and tease out those stories of successful solutions-based work, that is where we have been finding success with maybe communities that are struggling to understand or are struggling to, to do inclusive work, um, maybe dragging their feet a little bit. And so that, especially again, being in a conservative state that has been more successful for us. That's really interesting. Now let's get into any challenges you found using the report. I mean, has there been any recommendations that just didn't work as well for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the the report gives us a great framework to start, right? It gives us a framework to start having conversations. I think it's a it's not a blank itself to our our problems around communicating the need for inclusive dialogue and inclusive narratives um, it, within our history sector, but it's a starting place. Um, you know, anecdotally, we already know that some of the language seen in the report just isn't going to fly with our audiences. You know, one of the criticisms that I did want to make sure we talked about in this space today is that um, a lot of the recommendations feel like they're really focused towards a white audience. Um, and I do think that the report 
addresses some of that. And and looking in some of the data too um, that was pulled by the Frameworks Institute and who they spoke to, it is fairly reflective of our demographics across the country. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to us and individual communities. And so we have to be mindful of that language, you know, moving forward. I think, you know, one of the things that I would love to see in a future iteration is tactics that are demographic specific, because I do think that there are differences that are going to come out there about how do we communicate, you know, history significance and communicating history to Latino audiences or to Black audiences, because there are going to be differences. And so the report for us, um, and I hope for a lot of other people, is a starting place, not the end place, right? I, th- I think that's uh, so important, Jen. And we will have to tweak it according to our own experience and according to the, the person on the other side of the table from us. You know, and sometimes that can change unexpectedly in, in terms of kind of how the conversation's going. And it's easy to develop a game plan going into that important conversation and trying to frame it in a particular way. But depending on the receptiveness of the of the audience, you know, you could find yourself taking a, a 90 degree turn right in the middle of a conversation and they may not be receptive to where that conversation is leading and the language that you're trying to frame the discussion in. And I, and I think that's okay. I think it's important for us, especially people who are trying to gain new experience and advocacy with these kinds of tools to understand that don't feel defeated after the first conversation goes sideways if 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 that were to happen because it's, it's going to happen and that just because it may not go the way you hope the first time don't feel defeated there's going to be lots more opportunities to to try that and the toolkit i think does some really good job i like the way that some of this language is 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 presented in the toolkit in terms of giving you segues to try to redirect conversations and that that is not always I don't know that it's ever easy to do, and sometimes it can be quite difficult to do, but it's one of those things that takes practice, and um, and and I think one of the things that we can do as a field is help to support each other and provide opportunities for practice to actually get that language in use. Yeah, I would just build off of that to say the practice is so key here of having having the conversations and reading the room, going into that meeting or that presentation, having a good sense of who you're talking to. And that is absolutely a skill set. It's a skill set I'm still learning. <laughs> I put my foot in my mouth plenty of times um, at, you know, leading an organization. And so the thing for me with this report is it allows me to help empower staff to say it's okay as we navigate conversations around doing inclusive historical work that we're going to mess up along the way. And that's okay. I think there is a lot of fear on, on staff, especially of how to navigate these conversations. And so I think that, that the, the, the piece of practice is really important of being able to, again, come into a situation and know how to navigate it too. So like not all the recommendations are going to work for every specific audience, but again, tweaking them to your audiences as needed and sort of on the fly is a definitely a learned skill set. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you don't give your, your, your staff the opportunity to fail, they're not going to succeed. So now, you know, the report does say several times that the exact language they share can be adjusted as long as the same ideas and concepts are communicated. 
Can you give us some examples of how you've tweaked the report to fit your specific audience and communication needs? To that point, I I worry that the term critical may be lost to us as a useful piece of vocabulary. I've been speaking more about analytical thinking skills as opposed to critical thinking skills and just, just as a way to avoid those triggers that can suddenly kind of shut down, you know, the receptiveness of, of an audience or just change the, the vibe in a room in, in a heartbeat? Um, we have been using, so instead of in, inclusive history, in the context of peop, the peoples of Utah Revisited, we've been framing it as a fuller narrative of the state's history and many perspectives. Um, but it has been successful in helping us gain some traction. Thinking about it, the message of inclusion and, and what our mission should be and how we go about doing that, I, I have never received any pushback when I have discussed this in ways of what taxpayers can and should be able to expect from a public agency, right? So in the past, we have worked in a discriminatory way by serving some taxpayers while not serving others. They all are taxpayers, and they all deserve to receive uh, services of an agency charged with preserving the history of our people and, and sharing that and promoting an understanding of that history. So sometimes inclusion can also be what's fair you know, in terms that ring familiar to an audience that you might be speaking to. And I think that is where those like site specific examples can really be beneficial to communicating maybe larger efforts on an organization's part. I think for Steve and I as statewide organizations, we can sometimes, at least I feel this way, sometimes fall into the trap of speaking generally when we can actually sort of pull those threads in hyper-local, hyper-specific ways that can help communicate, okay, this is a really important story. Here's why we should tell this history at a much larger scale, you know, on behalf of our state's history, uh, for example. That's really at the heart of this research project, right? Finding out what the public thinks and then adjusting our language to match that. But I, I have to say my own reservation about that is that we have to be really careful that we're not reinforcing public sentiment that may be problematic. But moving on, um, some of our listeners right now may be wondering what the first step is in terms of putting this report to work. You know, where would you recommend someone, maybe a small organization or a medium organization, wherever they are, who may not be used to having these big conversations about communication? How, how would you recommend they get started? I think one of the most important things can be finding, you know, buy-in from your leadership. So your board is, an, you know, maybe the first key audience for introducing some of these concepts. And, and that can be done in, you know, in informal ways. You don't necessarily have to walk into a board meeting and kind of lay out, you know, the entire new vision for how you are going to communicate your organization's purpose. Uh, but working that into conversations and trying it on, you know, with, with um, people who are there to support you and, and see how it resonates with them because they are representatives of your community to, in, in, in one way or another. And uh, it seems to me that that's probably a good starting place. And then also just reaching out and developing, you know, finding communities of practice, just like we do with collections management and education. There, there are other organizations that are wrestling with the same 
issues. And it's, I always find it helpful. I rely so heavily on pure networks that Jennifer is part of at the state history level to, to bounce ideas off of other people. Because it's, it's so much easier when you can do that, even if your situations are not identical, just having the opportunity to have those conversations is so much better than going it alone. Jennifer and Steve covered a lot of ground for us there. But before we move on to our next guest, Christy, any further thoughts on how we should be getting this framework out there and in use? Well, as in terms of getting it out there, I think AASLH has a very good distribution setup. The real question is, is it going to be put into use by the sites as they get them? And I think that this will be easier for those sites who are more conscious about dialogue, engagement, and the use of that versus sort of the widget approach to their work, where they're pointing out, oh, this thing over here and that thing over there, or this is how you would do this back in the day. But rather, really, it, it, I think it's, it's going to be an, an easier framework to use if, in fact, effective dialogue and engagement with visitors is already a part of the practice. Well, I really enjoyed this interview with Jennifer and Steve, who are actually two of my favorite people in the public history world. And I think this interview illustrates and underscores why public history needs to be its own discipline within the profession. Because when you think about the work that public historians have to do in the field, it is very different from what happens inside of an academic classroom. Uh, certainly, research and scholarship are both part of it. But the number of stakeholders involved and the political dynamics are so much different on the ground in states, especially like where Jennifer and Steve work, than they are inside a Princeton, Yale, or even Purdue or Indiana University classroom. And I think that this is really critical to have the voices of public historians who are in these settings speaking about what they need in order to be successful and to advocate for history's importance at the state, regional, and local levels. And the last thing is I really appreciated both Steve and Jennifer expanding our idea of what inclusive history is and what it looks like. Because for them in their settings, inclusive includes people who don't share the same political affiliation as you. It includes political actors who you may not particularly like engaging with, or may see things very differently with, but they are taxpayers and they are people who are stakeholders to your organization. And so inclusive needs to somehow include them. And it includes a wider range of people than perhaps we immediately think of when we have these conversations and discussions. So I think for all those reasons, this is a really important interview and a really important next step for this report and this work to think about the different languages that it can be done in, to think about the different types of communities it can be serviceable to, and to think about what a really inclusive picture of public history looks like in the 21st century. I'm excited for those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I agree. They, they are in an environment that really does challenge them in, in that regard with some of the stories that they want to share and that they want to tell. What concerns me, I'll just, uh, let me just put it this way. What concerns me to some degree is that when people see the framework, is it going to be interpreted as a framework for the audiences they're already receiving? 
or are it, is it going to be an opportunity for the audiences that have been unserved, not underserved, unserved? Will it work? And how do we begin to capture and attract those voices that, that may be asking for something a little different? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. What I was hoping in the methodology report, and this is something that can be followed up on, I'm sure, but I will say this, one of the things that I was curious about is that the, the study went to great lengths to talk to um, the far right, for lack of a better term. I don't see any evidence of them doing that conversely, the people who are highly critical of museums for being exclusionary or white-centered, to get that data set, to get that understanding of where we may have failed, especially for those institutions that are in more urban-centric or communities of color-centric. Because I, I, I am pretty sure that, or at least let me put it this way, my instinct suggests that this may or may not work the same way, may not have the same response. I'm just not sure. But it's worth the conversation, and it's worth our institutions trying to figure that out and being able to bring that um, experience from the field back for whatever the round two study provides for us. Anyway, so that's my pitch for the next study from the Public History Research Lab, uh, is to dig a little deeper in, in that area too, because let's face it, um, what is it, by 2040, by 2030, by 2040, America as a whole is not going to be a white European majority anymore. And so what will that look like in these conversations about public history and what we're doing in our museums? Our last interview guest for this series is John Marks. John is a director of AESLH's Public History Research Lab, where he's been involved in every aspect of this report from the grant writing stage to inviting us to host a podcast about it. We asked John to walk us through the Reframing History Toolkit. Built on the research and recommendations in the report, the toolkit is designed to help incorporate the framing strategies into your work. When it comes to communicating about history, consistency is key, and hopefully the toolkit will help us all get on the same page. The Reframing History Toolkit is a resource that we created to exist alongside of the report itself that can really help people understand how they can put these findings into action in their professional lives and at their institutions. Uh, one thing that we find very important at the American Association for State and Local History, uh, particularly around all of our research projects, is making sure that we aren't just researching questions because we find them interesting. Uh, or because we think that they will be uh, interesting to members of the field, but really making that final connection to using research and the reports that we develop to inform public history practice and making sure that we are not just publishing a shiny PDF, uh, but that we are developing resources alongside them that can really help professionals learn how to integrate them into their work. Um, I think across the field, people are all very overworked. People don't have enough time to do the job uh, that they are paid to do, let alone uh, time to you know, stay abreast of what's happening all across the field. And I think that leads to a lot of these well-intentioned and really interesting and fantastic projects getting a couple days of social media play and then kind of getting swept away by the next big piece of content. Um, and we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. 
with reframing history. And so we wanted to make sure that even if you don't have the time or inclination to to read the report and think about our methods, that we still offered a way that was accessible and digestible that could help you integrate the reframing history findings into the work that you do in communicating the past. John walked us through the toolkit and highlighted some strategies you can start using right away. The first section of the reframing history toolkit is called Common Communications Traps and How to Avoid Them. And this section puts forth some different ways that I think all of us in the history community use from time to time, uh, whether you're in the academy or in a museum setting or uh, some other kind of public historian, um, ways of explaining what history is and why it matters that I think a lot of us fall back to and ways that they aren't working for us the way that we think that they are. And that it offers some some approaches using these re- recommendations to revise how we explain those those ideas in a way that will have greater resonance with members of the public. Let's dig into just one of these communication traps. I think a big one, and it's one that I see a lot in historians' communication right now, is an overemphasis on the truth. I think a lot of us want to emphasize that we have the truth as historians and that um, people should take, take our word for it, that what we are putting forward is the truth. But even when that's correct, uh, it's not something that has a lot of resonance with the public, um, and it often sets up this really unproductive binary between truth and bias, um, and it leads to this kind of politically freighted conversation about who has more ownership over the truth about the past. One way that you know this kind of comes up is to say, you know, to, to grapple with the real history of our country, you know, we must confront the truth, and you know, the harsh truth of. Christopher Columbus is one of, you know, violent colonization. And I think even so as much as that rings true to professional historians or people in the field, it's not the most effective way of conveying that message is what our research has shown. So alternatively, rather than this emphasis on the truth, the best way to communicate that message is an emphasis on the importance of critical thinking. And emphasizing critical thinking can really help people see the value in grappling with different perspectives and understandings of the past uh, and help them see that history is something that they need to engage with in an active way. And so rather than saying that to understand our country, we need to teach the truth, and that means rejecting mythology, we can say that meaningful engagement with the past requires grappling with perspectives that might change how we see it. Uh, And that means reckoning with Columbus's legacy of violent colonization is a critically important understanding for our nation's history. This adjustment lines up with the first recommendation in the report, which we discussed in episode one and two. And if you look at both the report and the toolkit, you'll see one communication pitfall for each report recommendation. So pay attention to that. One of the most useful tools in this toolkit uh, is the section called Keeping Conversations on Track, uh, which we also refer to as our bridge and pivot guide. So I think all of us in the history community have been caught in a conversation that you can just see is very quickly going off the rails. And it's, and it's really difficult sometimes without a, an intentional plan to get some of those conversations on track. And so what this piece of the toolkit does is it identifies some of the major ways that conversations about history right now tend to go off track and helps provide a frame that can help move those conversations into more productive territory. The way that we do that uh, is through sort of a three-step process. So the first 
is to analyze what it is you're responding to, what is actually happening in this conversation. And what we found in our qualitative research is that pushback against inclusive history tends to fall into some pretty well-established lines. So it's this idea that uh, people might share this idea that historians are just sharing their personal opinions. Uh, They might say that history is just the facts and interpretation is the same thing as bias. Or they might say that society is equal, uh, discrimination is a thing of the past. And the second step in this process is to bridge where the conversation is now to where you want it to go. And there are some really well-established ways of kind of building that bridge and some common phrases that can really be productive in taking a conversation that could be veering towards confrontational and move it back to someplace productive. So some things like what's most important to understand is, or let me answer you by saying, or that speaks to a bigger point. Some of these really simple phrases that I think any of us can uh, commit one or two of them to memory, and they will, uh, I think, quickly become part of our, um, you know, part of our toolkits of how we have these conversations, uh, can really do a lot to take it from where the conversation is now to where you want it to go. And then the third step in this, in this strategy and what we offer in this toolkit is how to pivot that conversation. And what we have is a, uh, a, an easy table that you can remember or can refer back to that tells you when they're using one of these well-established talking points or ways of approaching a conversation about inclusive history that are unproductive, which of these framing recommendations you can respond with in order to shift, shift the conversation and in order to shift the, the person you're speaking with's understanding of what's at stake when you're talking about inclusive history. So, for example, if uh, you're talking to someone that says, you know, that's not how I learned history, you know, you're just engaging in revisionist history and that that's something that is, uh, you know, is unacceptable. History is the truth. History is just the facts. Um, and you're trying to revise that. Uh, you should respond with the frame that focuses on doing detective work and emphasizing detective work can be a way of, of helping to build understanding. So, you know, they might say history is actually about just the facts and I don't appreciate this revisionist history. You might say what's most important to understand here is that doing historical work is like doing detective work. It involves using a range of sources, a range of different methods, uh, and it requires us to update our understanding as we learn new information or as new questions animate our investigations. And so rather than going getting into a back and forth about what is and isn't revisionist history, you've been able to shift that towards more productive terrain. Getting even more practical, we then get four pages of sample text that you can copy and adapt as needed. The third major item in the toolkit are sample reframed messages. And these are really before and after models that anticipate some of the major uses for these reframing history recommendations and offers an example of how you might put that into practice. So what the research team did uh, was to work with ASLH and our advisory committee to identify some major ways that people might use reframing history, whether it's describing a history department in a university or writing an about page for a historical society or writing an op-ed for publication in a local newspaper. It offers a way that people are doing that now and what that looks like, and then offer some suggestions about how you can make those types of communications more effective using these reframing history strategies. So included within these sample reframed messages are sample online content for an academic course, a way you might describe a a U.S. history survey, or you might describe the offerings of of a history department. 
We have an introduction to an exhibit. So something that you might put in your communications about an upcoming exhibit, or you might put uh, on the wall directly. We have a, uh, a letter to funders, um, so a fundraising appeal uh, that you might use that tries to explain why history is important, why it matters for society, and why people should consider giving money towards it. And then we also have uh, the opening of an op-ed addressing some of the recent legislation to restrict the teaching of critical race theory, restrict the teaching of systemic racism in, in American classrooms. And how you might use these strategies to make those kinds of pieces as effective as they can be. At the time we're recording this episode, the Making History Matter report has been publicly available for a few weeks, and we've gotten some feedback on people's first impressions and reactions. We asked John to answer some of the main questions that have come up since the launch. Frequently asked question number one, is this just your opinion on what strategies work best? One thing that we've heard from people are questions about how we know what we know in this report and why we feel as comfortable as we do making these recommendations. And I think something that's important for readers and people in the history community to remember is that the, the core of this project is we wanted to know is the ways that people in the history community communicate what our field is. Are they having the effect that we want? Are they helping the public better understand what history work is? And that's an empirical question. That is something that can be answered with research and with the method that we used in this report. And so we wrote the report itself in a way that was accessible and that was uh, open to people who maybe aren't as well-versed in this kind of research, who aren't uh, interested in sort of the data and the methods behind it, and they just wanted solutions to the communications challenges they're having. But ultimately, everything in this report is grounded in more than two years of mixed methods empirical research. Um, so we did deep qualitative research with people grounded in cultural anthropology and, and other disciplinary approaches that involved interviews and focus groups um, that really helped us understand the ways that people think about history. This is qualitative research that goes far beyond opinion polling. This isn't just pe how people feel about history or whether they like it or don't. It's certainly not about what they know about history. It's really deeply grounded research in the ways that people think about history, the assumptions they use, the comparisons they use, the things that are shared across members of the US adult population that help them understand what history is and why it matters. And then it was also supplemented through deep quantitative research. We ran a nationally representative survey experiment to make sure that the recommendations we were making we're shifting public understanding, and we're doing so across different demographic groups, across people of different ages, different political leanings, different racial and ethnic groups, different gender identities. And so while the report itself is something that reads very straightforward, um, and it's not full of footnotes, those were intentional decisions to make it as accessible as possible to a very diverse and dynamic field. But in our data and, and methods appendix, you can see that all of this information, all of these ideas are really rigorously grounded in, uh, in some very cutting edge research. The report itself is all about the results, but if you want to dig into the research process, there's a research methods and data appendix available for download at aaslh.org forward slash reframing history. Another frequently asked question or concern that has come up is whether this report is just aimed at white audiences. 
the strategies and recommendations that we make in reframing history are designed to work for all audiences. So over the course of our research, we really rigorously tested all of these strategies to make sure that they would, to make sure that they resonated with people of all different backgrounds, of all different identities. Any individual person is going to come to a conversation about history with lots of overlapping identities, right? People have different racial and ethnic backgrounds. They were raised in different areas of the country. They have different political leanings and religious beliefs. And those pieces of their identity might incline them to understand history or to understand conversations about the past in different ways. But there are also things that we all bring to the table in a conversation, ways that we approach a conversation that are the same, that are shared very widely across diverse groups of the population. And those are really the areas that we try to build these recommendations on. These cultural models that are are shared widely across people of different backgrounds and different identities. As part of our research, we, we did a national survey experiment that allowed us to test the shifts in understanding we were we were observing in the experiment and control for demographic factors to make sure that it wasn't demographics that was driving this change, but that it was actually the frames themselves and that they were working across a broad set of the population. It's, it's the same research strategy that helps us say with the confidence that we do that these are things that the public believes uh, in a way that is um, sort of singular and I think uncomfortable for for many members of the public history community, but it's a the different disciplinary approach and different methodological approach that we use in this project really gives us a high degree of confidence that these are recommendations that are going to work. I think the the ways that these recommendations get put to use are going to vary from institution to institution and from professional to professional. But they, I think anyone who is interested in using these recommendations should do so with confidence um, that they can resonate with audiences of all different types. Next up, frequently asked question number three. Do I need to use the exact wording from the report? Will it still be effective if I tweak the language? While generally, I think that's something that's acceptable, um, I also think people shouldn't assume that something won't work just because they feel like it won't work. You know, we did test these very widely and have a lot of confidence that they will resonate with communities um, even when it seems like they might not. So a great example is our third recommendation that emphasizes progress toward justice. What we found was that even though for many people it seems like, oh, justice, that must be something that people are now associating with with left-wing politics and are associating with social justice, I don't think that's going to fly in my community. We found the opposite, that that justice isn't automatically connected to kind of this idea of social justice, and it does have broad resonance, especially for people on the conservative end of the political spectrum. And we were conducting that research in 2020 and 2021 when uh, these conversations about systemic racism, about critical race theory were really at their peak. And so for justice to still have that kind of resonance across the political spectrum was really encouraging for one thing, but also I think speaks to the need to to really take seriously what these recommendations are. So you can just explain what the what justice looks like, whether it's you know more equal equal representation or equal uh, treatment by the criminal justice system or whatever the case might be. But the term justice isn't one that has been um, sort of deemed deemed out of bounds by by certain communities. And then the other example that I would use is 
I think people need to be careful when thinking about critical thinking and using variations on the term critical thinking. I think for a lot of people in the professional history field, we think of critical thinking and historical thinking as being synonymous. And the public does not think that way. For the for most of the public, historical thinking is the ability to recall facts and dates, the ability to uh, to call to mind and to answer trivia questions and to sort of regurgitate this kind of textbook version of history, capital T, truth. Um, and so while we think of historical thinking and think of evaluating multiple sources of evidence and weighing different perspectives and trying to figure out where the balance of evidence lies to draw a conclusion, that is what critical thinking means to the public. And so that's an example where we can use some variations on these. Like I think critical thinking and analytical thinking might both work equally well, but historical thinking might get the public to veer off in a different direction. Well, Jason... Any final thoughts on the report and everything we've covered in the series? Well, Christy, (laughs) let me first say that I want to applaud ASLH for this effort. As someone who's been preaching about the importance of history communication since 2014, it's really gratifying to see leaders in the field now taking it seriously as a sub-discipline and as a, a lens which needs to be analyzed and critically thought about. I think this is a bold step to take to put this out there and to be very upfront about where things are working and where they may not be working. That is going to unsettle people because people take their work and their passion for this public history field very seriously. They put a lot of time and effort and resources into it. And it can be very jarring to tell people that what you're doing is not working or not succeeding as well as you think it's succeeding. So, I want to applaud ASLH for for having this podcast and this report and allowing the space for this conversation to happen. I may not agree with everything in the report, and I may not agree with everything that's been said by our guests on this show, but I think the conversation is so invaluable to the field and to where we're operating and heading in this landscape, where the communications challenges are getting even more pronounced and profound. And so. Um, If we think about history as an always evolving intellectual argument, this is a new always evolving intellectual argument that we're having about the way to communicate history and how to do it most effectively in this landscape. And I think that is a really important discussion that needs to happen over the next few years. And I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more on, on several of your points. Yes, I do think this is an extremely important study that actually has the potential to have a far greater impact on the history museum field than other reports that we've seen. It's succinct. It is direct. It gives prime examples. Um, it, it encourages a different kind of practice, which, again, I do think is, is really, really critical as we move forward, especially if we want to be impactful institutions. And so... Like you, there were certain things that were said that, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, God. Or other times where I thought, hmm, that's very insightful. You know, it's something for me to think about as we move forward. Is the framework perfect? Absolutely not. But what it is, is an exceptional piece for the conversation to continue, not only to begin, but to continue. 
And I think for that, it is highly valuable and it should not be shoved at a shelf or at a corner or in a drawer. It needs to be used. It needs to be implemented. It needs to be practiced. I am thrilled to have played some small part in terms of helping to communicate what this is. And again, I'm, I'm just delighted with, with it 90%, you know? Um, and I think anything that is done that has the potential for, for what the framework offers us, the reframing history framework has to offer us, I think if you're not being critical and really thinking of where potential gaps may be and all of that as you're implementing and practicing, then again, you know, how serious are you about your work? What, what is it that you're really trying to do? So yeah, this has been really great. We've had some fabulous guests. Um, kudos to ASLH and its leadership. Kudos to the Reframing History Network and the public history research projects um, that have informed this work so deeply for two years. And what else is valuable is that you and I got to meet. We did. Isn't that great? <laughs> so that was cool. That was exciting. Absolutely. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. I may not always agree with you either, but you know, that's how it works. <laughs> Listen, no one agrees with me all the time. Not even my wife or my family or so. You know. <laughs> oh, darling, it happens to the best of us. Let me tell you, I'm right there with you. So that's part of the fun right, of it, right. the different perspectives. It, Inclusive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's our show. Thanks for joining us and being a part of this important conversation. Reframing History is brought to you by the American Association for State and Local History. It is made possible through support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. To learn more about the project and read the report, please visit aaslh.org slash reframinghistory. We'd like to thank our partners on the project, including the Frameworks Institute, the National Council on Public History, and the Organization of American Historians. Thanks as well to our advisory committee and our guests. Our guests on this episode were Jennifer Ortiz, Steve Murray, and John Marks. This series was written, edited, and produced by Hannah Hethman for Better Lemon Creative Audio, research and support by AASLH's John Marks. Again, I am Jason Steinhauer. And I'm Christy Coleman. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something you'll apply to your history communication toolkit, Please let your friends and colleagues know so that this research gets shared as widely as possible. You can share your thoughts on the Reframing History Project and this series on social media by using the hashtag ReframingHistory.